we have been doing for the last several weeks an overview of the scriptures. We're just kind of like, I don't know, 60 seconds or two minutes on every book of the Bible. And I have loved that. I, I think, I mean, you know, I'm a, I'm a Bible guy. I like the Bible and I like to know it and I want people to know it. And I know that for a lot of people, the Bible is opaque. You know, it's just a black box and I don't know what it says. And I, I'm no different than anybody in this room that it's, it's hard for me to do things that I don't understand or it's, it's intimidating to wade into something that's not familiar to me. This weekend, I was re- reading a book that is filled with insights, not a Bible book, just another book, and, um, but it was, it was intimidating to me because I don't, I don't, it's complex arguments, and so I watched like YouTube videos of people teaching on this book, and I, I read things and had conversations with people like, help me, what is he saying, like how does this work, um, and, I, and so I, I just think there's an awful lot of value when you're, when you're wading into something unfamiliar to kind of get some orientation, like, oh, I can see now what, what he's saying, and I hope that our time in the scriptures has had that, that value to you, to give you that 30,000-foot view. And I've actually heard from a handful of you that that has been helpful. I'm so glad. I love it. Whenever we do something, not everything's a hit, you know? But when we do things that actually land and that move the needle for you, like, that's just a joy to me. So I'm grateful to have heard that from, from a, handful about you, a handful of you about that. But it does leave me wondering um, about... Uh, how do I explain this? There is... Even if you know what the Bible says, you, if you get the plot summary, right, it would still be very easy, very, very easy to understand the plot, but to really miss the theme, to not understand what, what was, why did God have a story about the Israelites traveling across the desert? Why is there this story about, you know, how he's going to deal with the Babylonians and all these kind of things? How does it all work? And so I want to give you at least a day's worth, and maybe we'll do it in, over a couple of days, of not just what does it say, but how do you understand it? How do you read the Bible? And we, I've made a couple of allusions to this, well, and many, many times, but in particular the last two weeks I've done it. If you were here last week when we talked about Nehemiah, I offered you a couple of thoughts about what, this, what the purpose of the Scriptures is and how we can best read it. And then in this morning's message, I kind of double-tapped on it to try to give another layer of that. But I want to do this in a setting where there's the opportunity for engagement and interaction. I want to just offer you a template of how I think the Bible should be read. Not what it's particularly about in any book or any chapter, but what's the skeleton key? That if you get this, it's going to open up the whole thing for you. Okay? Now this we could do, and there are, literally, like seminary courses on this. So we could, we could hit this for hundreds of hours, and we're going to give it one hour right now. Okay? So we're not going to go super, super deep dive. But I do think that in the first hour of that, that we could cover a lot of stuff that might be useful and help you so that when you're all by yourself and you open up a book of the Bible, that you've got some sense of what it's about, that you then learn, like, how do I, how do I extract from it the value and the meaning of it? So far, so good? Yeah. What we're going to be talking and if, you're, if you want to take notes or you just want to file this away, I believe that the Bible is centered on Christ and its purpose is to reveal Him. But that we have a default assumption that it's centered on me and it's telling me what I need to do. And what I want to try to do is kind of create these two paradigms for you and say it's very normal, it's very natural, it's exceptionally common that we read the Bible as if it's an instruction book. It's a series of to-dos, right? And there are some to-dos. There are things and there's that, that, that belief is not completely unwarranted. But I do think it's mistaken, and I think it's going to hurt you, if that's all you understand. But rather than being this moralistic tale of what you need to do, 
it's a revelation of something else. It's a revelation of Jesus, and there are ways, that there are habits that you can form, there are skills that you can develop, and just as importantly, there are habits that you can break so that you'll understand what God is really trying to say in his word. And some of what we're going to talk about might seem very elementary, like, yeah, no kidding. <laughs> but I really think that overwhelmingly the vast majority of people who open their Bibles don't know what we're about to talk about. And I, I didn't know it. for I'd been on staff at Campus Crusade for, I don't know, a long time, 10 years or something, before I began to understand that I was doing it all wrong, right? And so, as I've said oftentimes in this class, we are always allowed to get things wrong on the way to getting them right. So let's bear with me and try to create a couple of categories of what we should do. Um, things, that, things that should, if, if we understand what the Holy Spirit was doing when he wrote it, that he meant something, right? And if we know what those things are, then we can read it, we can interpret the Bible consistent with his original purposes. If we can align the way that we read it with the way that he wrote it, it's going to give up a lot more secrets. And it's going to be, I think, it's going to be a far more joyful, refreshing, hopeful experience than what many people experience, which is just an oppressive burden. Okay? So far so good? All right. Now, um, there is a particular illustration that I've used many times, and so there, there may be... That what we're talking about today, I, I talk about this all the time, and so you may, there's going to be some overlap, right? So please don't, don't check out and be bored. Um, I'm going to give an illustration that I've often used, and then we're going to kind of unpack it. So I want you to think with me about the very familiar story of David and Goliath, all right? You got, you got a David and Goliath in your head? Okay. So um, the microphone makes things hard. Uh, I, would, I like being participating. Does anybody want to anybody come up front and, and, uh, and give us the David and Goliath story in like, you know, 60 seconds? Gary, can I, can I trouble you to do it? Who is doing it? You want to do it? So good. Come on up. All right. Let's see. All right. You got it? Now you got to put that basically in your mouth. Um, Let's go. David and Goliath. How's that story? Go? So there's going to be a war and... Uh, in the Philistines and they have a war and then and Goliath says um, if I win then you have to be my slave and if you win I will be your slave that's exactly right very good and what are the Israelites how do the Israelites respond to that um, I think they're all nervous and scared they are a little nervous why they're nervous and scared? Because Goliath is so big. He's huge. That's right. He's just massive, Do you remember how long it goes on? Um, it's, like, it's like six weeks. It's like 40 days. Every day he's taunting them. So come on out. And every day they just stand there. So then what happens? Uh, and then there's war and then... Um, <laughs> David has this slingshot, and he swings it around, and then he hits Goliath in the forehead, and they, um, he's pretty much knocked out, and then they kill him. Excellent job. Well done. Woo! Very, very good. Thank you so much.
gotta figure out how to put this back on. This is the strange mic. Okay, so, David and Goliath. Here's the thing, we've heard this story a thousand times, right? Big, huge guy and this little dude with a slingshot. And uh, what's the point? What's the point of the story of David and Goliath? How is it applied into our lives? Okay. Okay. So the battle is the Lord. The Lord fights our battles. What's the, what is the Veggie Tales version of that? Do you guys know Veggie Tales? <laughs> David and the giant pickle, right? And the refrain of the song is with God's help, little guys can do big things too. All right. Right? Okay. We've heard, that, we've heard that story taught a thousand times. And what tends to happen when we read the David and Goliath story and when we teach it in Sunday school, when we teach it in church, is that the point of the story is, y'all, be like David. David trusted God, and he was able to slay a giant. Imagine what he could accomplish if you would trust him. Right? Is that basically fair? Okay. And so we tell that story all the time. And the assumption that we make, the default assumption, that's not even, you don't even recognize, the nature of assumptions, you don't even know you're doing it, is that David's about me. <coughs> that when I watch the story, when I hear it told, I identify with the hero of the story, because I always identify with the hero of the story. Thank you very much, right? <laughs> and if David can go do big, scary things and prevail, then maybe I can go do big, scary things and prevail. And of course, it's not entirely about me, because I'm going to trust the Lord as he does it, but I'm really the guy. Mm -hmm. I'm the guy. That's our assumption when we read the story of David and Goliath. That's our assumption when we read all of Scripture, okay? But what I want to suggest to you is that the purpose of that story is not to say, go be like David, but rather to say, have you ever noticed how much like an Israelite you are? Okay, so here's the real story. David and Goliath is a story about a group of people that are facing an enemy that can and will destroy them. He's huge. He's this massive dude. His spear weighs like 40 pounds or something. He's gonna crush you. And every day for six weeks, day after day after day, he comes out and he taunts the people. He ridicules the people. And day after day, they just stand there being like, well, I mean, I don't know. I hope somebody else would do it because I'm not going to step up. That would be stupid, right? Who wants to be the one that gets their head crushed in and then all of the Israelites are enslaved? They're facing an enemy and they can't defeat the enemy, so they do nothing. And then, from the least expected corner, from no place, some this kid comes bringing cheese on a platter for his brothers. This nobody from nowhere shows up and he intervenes on their behalf. He risks his life to stand in the gap between a frightened people and a terrible enemy. And by his act of courage, by his act of righteousness, he purchases for them the safety that they can never purchase themselves. And the Israelites who were in grave danger are now suddenly free. And now that Goliath's dead with not only a rock buried in his forehead, but his head severed with his own sword, then and only then do they rally to his side and join him in the victory that he had won. Yeah. Make sense? Yeah. Does that sound at all familiar to you? Yeah. We are facing an enemy that can and will destroy us, and there's nothing that we can do. Really, seriously, if it's all about you, what are you going to do to defeat sin in your life, to defeat the judgment? There's nothing that you can do about it. And so day after day, week after week, you just stand there, you just take it, because what else are you going to do? And then God sends a rescuer, nobody from nowhere. He grows up in Nazareth, which is this squalid little corner of Israel, 
There's rumors that his mom got pregnant before she even got married. Who knows what's up with that? He has got no credentials. And he shows up. And he not only risks his life, but he gives his life. He doesn't just step into the gap in an act of courage, but he surrenders there and dies. He's the one who dies. And by his act of courage, in fact, by his death, he purchases for us the safety that we could never purchase ourselves. And then, and only then, after he has won the victory, do we rally to his side to join him in the victory that he has won. Make sense? Now, millions of people have heard the story of David and Goliath. And they've heard that the Bible is good news. But if the good news is, go face a giant, then that doesn't sound like particularly good news to me. That sounds like the gospel is a crushing burden that you cannot live up to. As long as I think I'm David. But if I'm the Israelites, and I watch the story play out, and I realize, oh my gosh, when I am in a miserable situation, and there is no way out, and I have no hope, Perhaps God will send, perhaps God has sent a rescuer to intervene on my behalf. That he will do what I cannot. And then I will somehow become a partaker of his goodness and his blessings. Does that second version sound like better news? More like good news? More like, more like the gospel news? What, what, we, what I want to impress upon you or suggest to you is that it's possible to read all of scripture through that second lens. Not only possible, but preferable. Not only preferable, but it's what God intended in the first place. But in order to read David and Goliath properly, you're going to have to suppress a couple of instincts. And you're going to have to develop a couple of new skills. And that's really kind of just, I want to give you a couple of skeleton keys. And this is a skill that you can unpack for the rest of your life, right? But there's a few key points that we can kind of lay out there that might, might make it work. Okay, so far so good? All right, so for those of you that have already kind of like gone down this journey and you've already kind of begun to develop those skills, what, let's, let's just kind of pull it out. What are, some of, the, what are some, of the, some of the key habits that are natural and normal, maybe the way that you were taught to read the Bible, that you have found helpful to set aside or suppress or not, you know, to ignore? What is the normal good thing, the normal thing you do that you want to stop doing, Andy? Uh, identify the hero in the story. Okay, very good. So there is this very strong instinct. So you do it when you watch any kind of movie, right? Any film that you watch, have you noticed that you watch it through the eyes of the protagonist? Okay, it's a normal thing. And not only do you watch it through the eyes of the protagonist, but you, well, I don't know, maybe this is a little personal, but do you, like, imagine that you're him? Like, do you watch, do you watch this thing and then you're like, if I, I want to be, I want to have his wisdom. I want to have her courage. I want to be this brilliant. I want to be this whatever the thing is, right? And so that's a, no, that's a very normal thing. That's, stories, one of the reasons we like stories is because it's so easy to write yourself into the script and you imagine you're this. Okay, so let's just be vulnerable. Tell me a story, a book, a movie that you have cast yourself into the role of. When did you do this? I do this, I can give you 300 of these, so you've got to have at least one. Like, Chris? Superman. Okay, Superman. You want, what do you want to be? You want to be Clark Kent or Lex Luthor? I want it to be Clark Kent. Right, right? As strong as a kid. Who wouldn't want that? That's why, why do kids love comic books, right? Because it's, it's wanted, we want to be like them. And, it, and it's why, and you, you see this phenomenon, you see this, see this phenomenon very explicitly. Whenever there's a new comic book or there's a new Marvel movie, and this time, finally, the hero is a woman and everybody rejoices, why is that? Why do we rejoice when there's a female with a strong character lead? Like, literally, why do we, we, we express this all the time? Why? 
Okay, right, because girls like girl heroes, and it's because it's easier for a girl to imagine themselves in the role of the girl hero, right? You, you know this, right? So when Black Panther came out and the African-American community could say, finally there's a, there's a black hero, that's because black people want to be able to identify, imagine themselves in the role of the hero. White people do this, men do this. This is like a universal human experience, is that we see the hero and I want to be, there's somebody that looks like me, and it makes it easier to pretend that I am them. And I'm not saying that's a bad thing at all. I'm saying it is a thing, right? Okay. Is there a character that you love, that you identify with, that you want to be like? Who? Frodo. Frodo, right. Is Frodo your guy? If, if, you, if you could be anybody in, in uh, Lord of the Rings, would it be Frodo? Sam. Yes. Sam. <laughs> right. Okay, who's team Frodo? Or Aragorn? Or Sam? Or Gandalf? That's, that's like a massive opportunities, right? Frodo is the one, but I'm, I'm on team Sam. I think Sam is the hero of that story, right? But whoever your guy is, like, you imagine, like, would I, would I be able to say, I can't carry the ring, but I can carry you? You know, which, which, which thing makes your heart sing that you want to, his lines, you wish they were your lines. Her lines, you wish they were theirs, okay? So, yes, Fetzer. Problem is, if we do that in a movie, no, no problem, game on. But when we, when we come into the Bible, then it's going to lead us astray. So watch for yourself. Watch how frequently you just have this unspoken assumption that you are the protagonist. Okay? Just make, that, make a note. Be, beware my interpretation if I've cast myself in the role of the hero. Do that. Okay, what else? What other habits do we do that you think might be desired? Might we want to suppress those things? Yeah, Rita. I think we tend to take Scripture out of the context. Oh, we do that a lot too. Okay, great. And so if we're going to read the scriptures faithfully, one of the first things we want to do is just be honest in our observations of it. Okay? Do you guys have an, does OIA mean anything to you? You Bible study people? OIA. No, no, no? Oh, interesting. There we go, Susan. Observe, interpret, apply. So the most fundamental like structure when we come to the text, step one is just observe. Just look at it. We've talked about this. It's like you're dissecting the frog. Do you remember dissecting a frog? You take that poor thing, dead formaldehyde, reeking frog, and you crucify him in the bottom of this like rubber, yucky aluminum tray. You know this, right? And you split him open and you peel his guts out. Step one is just looking. You don't know nothing about nothing. You don't have a, don't have a biology degree. You're just looking at guts, right? Step one in Bible study is just observe. And one of those ob- observation skills that we should do is say, what's the context? What's happening? What happened before? What happened after? Where does this fit into the flow of the thing? And if we don't do that, we're going to get into trouble, right? So I love, observe the context. That's the right thing. Keep doing that. But when we start into the interpretation, that's where things are going to change, where I want to suggest to you some different rules of interpretation, okay? What else do you do? Other basic Bible study things. Yeah. One is to think that everything is uh, applicable to today. Okay. Oh, yeah, this group 2,000 years ago, that's America. Excellent. So that's that. You know, versus looking at the history of it. Okay, great. So as we're doing this, when we're doing our interpretation, we're trying to make sense. You, want to, you might have a couple of categories in your mind. And if you want to be fancy, we call these things continuities and discontinuities. There are things about the original context, the original meaning, the original moment that are very similar to us. There are things we could, you know, if we could go, you know, thaw out some human being who died 4,000 years ago, right, and bring him back to life, there's an enormous number of things that he would share in common with us. Because human beings were the same across the line. But of course, 
there'd be a great number of differences as well. His world is different. His expectations are different, right? And so when you come to the text, you want to be able to distinguish between what's, where there's continuities, where there's discontinuities. Excellent. Okay. One or two more. What do we, do? What do we tend to do? Yeah, Kat? Not go deep enough. I read a lot of times just from a sense of kind of like obligation. Yeah, sure. I'm just skimming it. Say, okay, I got that done. Yeah, and so oftentimes we're going to read, we're going to skim, we're just going to go through it. And then the easiest thing to do, of course, is when you come to anything that doesn't make any sense, just keep going, right? It's, it'll be fine, right? Because it's hard to stop and be like, whoa, what? Hang on, let me read about this. Let me understand this. Let me slow the train down. Because like, I was trying to do it through the Bible in a year. That's going to take 15 minutes a day, and that's all I got, 15 minutes. So let's, let's go, right? We, we just do this all the time, right? And we can miss those things. That's another serious habit that'll, that'll hurt us. Yeah, Bob. Sometimes there's a tendency to say the Bible's a moral handbook and just leave it at that. For sure. And that's the thing really that we're militating against, that, I'm, that I want to advocate, that we, we want to be careful. If when I read it, I cast myself in the role of the hero, beware of that. If when I read it, all I'm really extracting is the list of do's and don'ts. Like all I'm, I'm going to go through it, I'm just going to mine it for moral obligation then, there, well, well, there may be moral obligation, but I think it's a very fraught process. And we just turn, if we turn it into that, it's not going to feel like good news. It's going to feel like this. And we want to be careful of that. Okay? Yes. Sarah Lynn. Sometimes um, I forget to invite the Holy Spirit into it and pray first and ask the Holy Spirit to like, highlight Scripture. Okay, so good. So Sarah Lynn says, sometimes she'll forget to like, invite the Holy Spirit. So remember, he wrote it. Authorial intent is everything. Okay, it has two authors. We want to know what did Moses mean? What did Paul mean? What did James mean? What, what, okay, but we also want to know what did the Holy Spirit mean? And you can't ask Paul because he's dead. Okay, but you can't ask the Holy Spirit. Would you show me? And Jesus promised that when the Spirit came, he would illuminate his word for us. So are we availing ourselves of the resources that we have in him? It's great. Lily? This kind of just uh, takes the last three comments and emphasizes that again is that when we come to the Bible we forget to remind ourselves that it is not merely a book but that it is alive and active and that this is we're not coming to learn about a book we're coming to learn about a person that's right right so the text is a gateway to something greater than the text right it is a crucial thing we want he's he God has revealed himself through his word so there's something going on here but he's revealed himself through his word. He hasn't revealed the world through the word, but it all comes back to him. Am I looking for him, or am I just trying to get better at Bible trivia? You know? Like, what good is that? Okay, one more, and then, then I'll start piecing, oh, I'll two more, and then we'll start piecing things together. Catherine. Um, you, you probably already covered this, but what I have caught myself doing is taking a scripture that, that definitely applies to me, and then I try to, you know, keep it and, make it mean something more and and then I find out that I didn't look to see who they were really talking to in the scripture because that kind of opened it up more because it's it's like well I mean I, I, I don't know I just feel embarrassed sometimes yeah well, and they were talking to someone else in that a different position and I can learn by like what you said earlier by Exactly, it's a context question. So, and, and we, I think I was busting on this a couple weeks ago. It's, it's Jeremiah twenty nine eleven, right? I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you. Okay, well, 
what does that mean? If I understood what that means, I might not cross-stitch that as frequently, right? Because it, it doesn't mean what you think it means. If I understand, the, if I'm really doing the work to understand the, the context, it's still good news, but it's good news in a different way than we tend to treat it in our bumper sticker culture. Okay, Chris, you get the last shot on this. Yeah, we've, we've commented on a lot and just in different words that you gave us when I was a fellow of just uh, the fact that the whole Bible's not a story. You can't just, because if you vision it all as a story, kind of like Jonah, you were talking to the minor prophets, that that's a story rather than history, then you're able to fit in things to as you, as you want them rather than it being history, it's factual. Yes. It happened that way. Yeah, and so we can't, so there's a, tr so the scriptures comes with a trustworthiness to it. These, these aren't just fairy tale stories, but there's real history. That whatever God is doing, whatever he's revealing to us in his word, he's also done through geography, through history, in time and space with real people that actually are shockingly like us, right? And if we can read their stories and get it, then it can all make sense. Okay, so here's a couple of things that I want to encourage you to do. You read the Bible. Step one, just pay attention. Just look at it. Observe it. It's very generic. Like, it might be that you slow down and you take notes. Or you ponder, what are the verbs? What are the nouns? What are the adjectives? What is happening? Just follow the flow. What's 29? If you're looking at Jeremiah 29, 11, just check out verses 10 and 12. Or go crazy and look at 9 and 13, right? Get a little bit of a bigger bite to see what's, what's happening here. What do we need to be, be concerned with? Okay, so we're doing that. We're observing it. But then I want to give you two keys. These are the things. If you, if you remember nothing else, here's the punchline. This is it. Number one, every story, every passage, everything that's going on, ask yourself, where do I see fallenness in this passage? We call this the fallen condition focus. And fallenness is always going to fall into one of two categories, and almost always both, okay? It is badness, and it is brokenness. Where are the people sinning? Where are the people suffering? Where are the people manifesting their guilt? And where are they just experiencing grief? Fallenness, the fact that you're a fallen person means you're going to do bad things and you're going to get cancer, okay? This is what it means, that you live in a world where bad stuff happens to you, you're broken, you suffer, you grieve. And you're the kind of person who just makes stupid decisions and you hurt people and you're selfish and you don't love God and we're sinners. We're sinners and we're sufferers. And every passage of scripture is going to reveal that. When you see you're drawn, you're naturally drawn to the hero of the story, stop that. Draw yourself to the sinners and the sufferers. Because that's where you live in the book. Okay? The purpose of the scriptures is to, is to be a mirror that shows us us. To reveal to ourselves, you suffer like this too. Because you live in a world that is fraught. And you do the same sorts of things they do. And if you will look at the sin, if you look at the suffering, and then just slow the train down and think, why did they do that? Like you've probably, probably never been asked to spend 40 years walking through the, the wilderness. Right? So you could read the Israelite story and be like, ah, this doesn't apply to me. I've never been in the deserts of Israel. But you have been in situations where you had to trust God and it didn't seem like he was coming through. Right? right? Have you ever been in that situation? What was going on in their heart? If you will look at their sin, if you look at their suffering, and then you'll ponder, like, why did they do that? You're going to find, like, oh, I know exactly why they did that. For the same reason that I did that two days ago. Right? Chase down the sin and the suffering. Ponder that. Consider the human condition. You know a lot about the human condition because you're human. 
What's going on? If you will stop, when I come to the text, I'm going to always pause to look for the sin and the suffering, the fallen condition, the badness, the brokenness, and wonder why. If you will chew on that, it's very likely that very often you're going to find that it reminds you of you. And now we're halfway home. Okay, so you do that. Got it? Step two, when I come to the text, is I want to look and see, okay, so what about that? What does God do? When they're sinning like this, when they're suffering like this, what does he do about it? Like in this actual circumstance, in the context of the, of the passage, what does he do? And if you will stop and be like, how does God treat sinners? How does he treat frightened people? What does he do when there's a giant, massive dude threatening to kill those people? How does he, what does he do about it? Well, in this instance, what he does about it is he sends in some nobody from nowhere to be their rescuer, to be their hero. Right, And if you will begin to notice not just the sin and the suffering, but also God's solution. That's your second thing. We got, we're going to watch the fallenness, and we're going to look for God's solution. If you will begin to notice and develop your skill to notice, when, how does he do it? And then sit back and think, okay, what's behind the way that he did it? Why did he do it that way? What are the implications of how he did it? How does that remind me of other ways that God has solved problems throughout the scriptures? Then a pattern will begin to emerge right in that space. And what I think you're going to find is it's uncanny how often, how very, very often he is giving us hints, giving us foreshadowings, all of which are preparing us. Oh, I know how Jesus, I know, I know how God solves problems. I know exactly how God deals with sinners and sufferers. And, and I know what he does to do it. So that when Jesus shows up, finally, when you get to the New Testament and Jesus shows up, you're like, well, yeah. <laughs> He's been doing this all along. He's constantly, he loves to win by losing. He loves to defeat the strong with the weak. There's th- there are patterns and things in his behavior that we can notice, but that sometimes we don't notice them because we're so busy putting on the hero suit and we miss the gospel in the midst of it, right? Those are your two big things. If you could learn to notice the fallen condition, the sin and the suffering, and learn to notice God's solution, think about that, what you will find. You come to all these texts, and I, I promise you, just try it. Just try it. Um, and it'll be difficult, because everything's difficult when we don't know how to do it. But over time, as you do these things, and if you, have, if you have conversations with other friends, like even in your life group, you can say, hey, can we try this? I have a resource I can provide you guys with. It's called One Story. A friend of mine and I wrote it when we were at Penn State together, and it's like, it'll teach you how to study like every genre of scripture through this lens. If there's any life group leaders in here that you say, well, can we do that? It's like, yeah, sure, let me know, and I'll get you the resources. And we could equip you bit by bit by bit to do that. And the hope would be not just that it would transform your life group, although that would be amazing, but that it would transform the next 500 quiet times you have. Maybe you'll get more than 500. That means you're dead in, t- you know, in two years or something. So then the next, the next 10,000 quiet times that you have, um, that you would begin to see this in a, in a different way. Okay? So far so good? Two things. Fallen condition, God's solution. If you can, if you can lens those things out, it'll be good. And now there's a lot more we could say about this, but let me pause and give you a chance to ask questions or make observations, whether you're practiced in this or you're not. Paul. How do you use this approach for the story of Noah and the flood? Okay. All right. The solution to the sin there was wipe everybody out. Yes. Okay. Well, was it? Well, yeah, I know that. Was it? Okay, so, so let's do, let's do, let's, we'll, do a, we'll do a really quick, quick and dirty version, okay? So what is going on in the story is the, you, you flip over to your Bibles, what is it, Genesis 6 to 8-ish, is that right? I forget. So uh, what's the story? What's the sin and the suffering in the story of Noah's? What's that? Sons of God. 
Okay, so this is actually interesting. Do we want to get into this? <laughs> the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, and all kinds of weird stuff starts happening. Okay. Um, what's, what, what's the sin and the suffering? And I think that's fair, that there's, there's, there's the possibility that what's lying behind this is really weird, very confusing, demonic activity, right? If the sons of God are fallen angels and the daughters of men are humans, the, the, are, is it the case that, this is so strange, this is not going to help us, that the Nephilim... <laughs> That the Nephilim are this half-human, half-demon kind of creature, okay? And there's, there's actually a reason to believe that that is true, which is so, so strange, okay? But what else, what's happening without getting it super weird? All the evil all the time. God saw that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only, only evil all the time. It's bad, okay? Lots and lots of sin. And by the way, where there's lots of sin, there's necessarily going to be lots of suffering. Because suffering leads to sin. Sin leads to suffering, and it's just like, everything just goes crazy. Okay, any other quick observations here as we're doing this in like a very accelerated fashion? There's sin, there's suffering, there's judgment. Kelly? God found Noah to be the only one righteous. Okay, so in the midst of this, there's a world of badness. There's this one guy, Noah, right? Interesting. There's going to be a guy named Noah. Noah's characterized as righteous. We're just going to hang on to him for a minute, all right? So everybody's bad. Judgment is coming. There's a good guy. Any more sin and suffering? God is suffering. God is suffering, right? He's grieved. He is. How could he be grieved by the puppets of his own making? What does he care? But he is grieved. So that's amazing. Ray Dallas said Noah was suffering. I would say yes. To be sure. So Noah's going to take about 100 years to build this boat. And you got to think that along the 100 years it takes to build a boat in the middle of a plane, the people that are throwing smack at him, right? Ridicule, mockery. I don't know. Maybe they're stealing his nails. I don't know what's happening, but like, but it's, but it's not a lot of fun for Noah, right? Okay. But when the judgment comes, it's going to come. And their sin is going to lead to more suffering, right? And so what do we see that God does? One of the things we're learning, what does God do to sin? What do we, if, the, if, the, if this is a gospel story, what does God do about sin? He punishes it. It brings death because the wages of sin is death. And so as I read the story, I'm like, man, God is serious about this. And every inclination of the thoughts of his heart is only evil all the time. And wouldn't it be embarrassing if we could, you know, Elon Musk wants to make some kind of like a brain, like interface. Can you imagine if I could plug that into your head and put on that screen your thoughts? <laughs> Was there anybody on the world that would like volunteer for that to happen? Like, holy moly, okay? And so, what's he going to do? He's going to, everybody's going to die. Everybody's going to die. Everybody is going to die. Well, actually, not everybody. Because there's a solution to it. What's the solution? There's an ark. What's an ark? It's not really even a boat. It's more of a box, truthfully, right? An ark is a box, but this is a box that floats. So we can use it as a boat, right? And we're going to load in people. And we're going to load in animals. We're going to be eight people in all, right? And so what else? How does the the boat work out? What happens? It works. It floats. It's dry. They cover the sides with pitch. And there's a place that when the judgment falls, and it does, rains for days, and everybody's, and the water starts getting higher and higher and higher, there is a place of safety in the midst of the judgment. Isn't that interesting? That even in judgment, God remembers mercy. And there's a place where if you're in the boat, when the judgment falls, you're not going to die. You're not going to drown. 
Now, if you're not in the boat, it's going to go very, very badly for you. But if you're in the boat, it's not your righteousness that will save you. It's the boat. And this boat has been created by one who is righteous. So in the midst of a world of badness and brokenness, there's this righteous person who creates a place of safety so that when the judgment falls, it won't fall on you and you can survive. Any of that beginning to sound familiar? Okay, Brad? And the door is open until it's shut. That's right. And apparently the Lord shuts the door, right? There is a window. There is a, there is a time. I mean, I don't think Moses was taking tickets. That's right. Sorry. Yeah, that's right. Now, Noah's kids and his kids' spouses, they get in the boat. Are they righteous? No. Are they saved by their righteousness? Why are they saved? Why do they get to go in the boat? They're related to Noah. Can you imagine what it would be like to be like, uh, Noah, could I please be adopted into your family? Right? The gospel is a story of adoption. Those that have no right to be in the family of the righteous one who has provided a place of safety, he, to them he gives the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. And the story of Noah is about how a group of people that have no right to be inside the boat get to come in and to be saved from the judgment when it falls. Over, is that, is that enough? Paul, you just disappeared. So, um, this is how it works. Over and over and over and over again, if we will learn to look at this story and begin to see these pictures, right? What's the fallenness? How does God solve it? If we will stop and squint at it, you begin to, you'll begin to see like, oh my gosh, it's there, it is there, and it's there, and it's there. Noah's name means rest. And Jesus said, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Noah was one of scores of people that are anticipations of the Messiah, the righteous one who makes it safe for the unrighteous to be saved. We could do it all day long. More to the point, you could do it for the rest of your life, reading the Bible through this lens. Okay? So far so good? All right. Yeah. Go ahead. I think you have to be careful of not carrying that same kind of image to the next section. Wait, Judy, say that a little bit louder. Say it again. I think you have to be careful about not fixing the heroes as heroes permanently because they are also fallen. So they're an example then. Yes. Like when he lands and plants his vineyard, things go horribly wrong. So if you think, okay, he's the symbol of Jesus, then we've got to carry him there. So you've got to know when to stop. Excellent. Okay, this is such a really, really, Judy, I'm, so, I'm grateful to you for saying this because this is a really important point. So what you're going to find is over and over and over and over and over again, these, strip, these pictures that for, foreshadow, that anticipate, that point to Jesus. But none of them are Jesus. Okay? And so when Jesus shows up, he's the true and better Noah. Right? Because his boat is not just available for eight, but for multitudes. Right? He's the true and better David, not only because he doesn't just kill Goliath, but because he destroys our greater enemy, but also because he doesn't just risk his life, but he gives his life. Right? And he is the true and better David and the true and better Noah because he doesn't end up getting drunk in a field and having sex with Bathsheba. Right? So when Jesus comes, he's going to fulfill every one of these pictures, but then he also overfills them because he's better than everybody, right? So he's better than Noah, and he's better than Moses, and he's better than David, and he's better than Abraham, and he's better than Esther. He's better than the whole lot of them, and yet there are things about they were all anticipations of him, but he never does. He doesn't pick up the Bathsheba line because he's better than all of them, 
right? So every anticipation is, is but an anticipation. None are the fulfillment. We're not saved by Noah. We're not saved by David. But they point us to the one who does. Okay? Making sense. Okay. One or two more quick comments on that. Yeah. If you read the Bible this way, you can't see it as a moral obligation. And you can't use it as a weapon against other people. That's right. Because if you're looking for yourself and the sufferers and the sinners, you're not saying, well, that, that guy over there, he's, he's the people on the earth. Because you're already in a mindset and a posture to identify yourself with the bad people in the story. That's right. Excellent, excellent. So, so as we, if we read the scriptures this way, as again, I'm telling you, the Spirit wrote them this way, then it, it saves us from the moralistic finger pointing of all those dirty sinners because we've already positioned ourselves with all of the dirty sinners who are grateful that somebody built us a boat that we never could have built ourselves. Absolutely, absolutely true. Okay, Catherine. It's easier to have compassion on them then because like Jesus looked at the crowd and had compassion. Right, right. Because I identify more with them than with the self-righteous one up in the ivory tower. Okay, so here's your, here's your final exam, okay? Jesus told a whole bunch of stories. In Matthew 13, in particular, he told a bunch, and he told two stories in Matthew 13 that are shockingly like each other. He tells the story of a man who finds a treasure hidden in a field. And he wants the treasure, so he buys the field. Tells another story about a merchant who finds a pearl, giant pearl coming out of some big friggin' oyster. And he wants the pearl, so he sells all that he owns to get the pearl. And Jesus says about these stories, the kingdom of heaven is like a man who found a pearl. The kingdom, a merchant who found a pearl. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who found a treasure. And for centuries, people have been reading that story and thinking, okay, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant who finds a pearl. In what sense is the kingdom of heaven like a merchant who found a pearl? What's the application point of those stories? And I'll warn you, be wary of your inclination to identify with the protagonist. What are those stories about? Jesus. 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 Who? Who's it, Ben? Yeah. Jesus gives up everything. Okay, Jesus gives up everything. Why? Unpack that, Ben. Yeah, we tend to think that that's what now we need to go do. Is we need to give up everything, yeah. which we can't really do, right? Right, and we wouldn't if we could. But, but, but instead, Jesus valued us and gave up everything. That's exactly right, Ben. So the, the most common way is that we, we, tell the, we tell the story of the merchant who finds a pearl, and he gave up everything to get the pearl because the pearl is so valuable. And because Jesus is so valuable... Such an amazing, he is the pearl of great price. He is this glistening, shining jewel that what you need to do is give up everything to get him and he'll be worth it in the end. He's worth everything. Now, he is worth everything. That's all true. However, is that the gospel? Is the gospel the story of the extraordinary sacrifice that you made to get Jesus? Or is it the story of the extraordinary sacrifice that he made to get you. You are not the merchant. You are not the protagonist. He's the merchant. He is the protagonist. And Don, what does that make you? You are the pearl. You are the beloved of God. You are the one for whom he gave up everything, including his very life, that he might win you and make you his own. And it is only 
It is only after you believe that he gave everything to win you that you will even begin to give up anything in response to him. We love because he first loved us. We give because he's given to us. And we re- when we read that scripture through the moralistic lens of, hey, well, he's a good pearl. I better go sell everything. First of all, you're not. You didn't. You won't. All right, but second of all, he did. He did. And that experience to understand that you are the pearl is transformative in your life. If we would read the scriptures through this lens, man, blow everything up. Dig it. All right, that's all for now. So Will next week talking about parenting. So come and learn how to talk to your children or more to the point, teach us how to talk to our children. All right, thanks.